never can know what kind of curves life might throw at you. And so I'd like for you to watch with me for just a moment um, what happened with this guy. Watch this clip. Texas quarterback Colt McCoy. Colt, what was it like for you to watch this game, your, your last game in a Longhorn uniform from the sideline? <laughs> uh, I love this game. I have a passion for this game. I've done everything I can to contribute to my team. And we made it this far, and, and it's unfortunate I didn't get to play. I, you know, I, I would have given, I, I'd have given everything I had to be out there with my team. But congratulations to Alabama. I love the way our team fought. Uh, Garrett Gilbert stepped in and played as good as he could play. You know, he, he did a tremendous job, and uh, I always give God the glory. I never question why things happen the way they do. Uh, God is in control of my life, uh, and I know that nothing else, I, I'm standing on the rock. What have doctors told you about the extent of That is really what we're talking about here today, exactly the same thing, because that's what happens in this story. You see, I love how Kay took us through what happened last week, and, and as you go back and read the end of chapter 2, you see that the result of that trial was that all of the Jewish men, including, or not all, I mean, the ones that were in the school that we talked about in chapter 1, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, were elevated to the highest positions in the land. So you're thinking, wow, these guys are like standing in tall cotton. That's what you'd say if you were in Texas. Um, you know, here they are. They've reached the pinnacle. I mean, how, it couldn't get any better than this. And isn't it just true in our life, too, that sometimes when we are at the top, the greatest test of our life is about to come? And that's what happens. That's what's going to happen here. So it's no wonder in my day-to-day -day life that I might encounter the same thing, that just when things are going well for me, I better get ready. I better batten down the hatches because the test might be right around the corner. So open your Bibles, if you haven't, to Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. And let's look at really three things that Daniel's friends are faced with. Because this chapter really, he doesn't occur. We don't really see Daniel here. But these are his friends. And so we're going to see their story. We're going to find out that they are right off the bat, required to worship the king. They then refuse to bow to the king, and they are then rescued from the king and what he set up to do. So those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. So required uh, worship of the king. You know, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then what's a whole dream worth? Because in chapter 2, that's what Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about this statue, and you read all about it. And I think he became so caught up in the dream that, um, wow, it just took him, he dwelled on it. And as you dwell on something, a picture, a painting, a dream, then you think, well, hmm, if a little of this, then why not a whole lot of it? And that's what began to happen here. Um, I think whatever the, the, the dream is worth, it's worth enough to feed and ego visions of grandeur. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at me, go back to 247 and read that with me. Because it's funny to me that we ended the chapter last week with him declaring this. Then the king, oh wait, wait, wait. then the king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. I mean, it kind of sounds like a declaration of faith, doesn't it? I'm thinking, okay, he's got it. This guy's got it. 
but he really doesn't yet. He can't shake this image from his mind. And as you read in the commentary and the questions, some scholars think perhaps 20 years passed by. Some think mm, one or two. I mean, does it really matter? No, because regardless of the amount of time, it was enough time for him to concoct in his head, ah, if I'm the head, then why not the whole? And that's what he did. He was like, okay, a little bit of this, as I said, and he just, you give him an inch, and he just ran the mile and goes full out, all right? And so what he creates is this ominous, it's not really a statue like was described, he creates this ominous thing. And I couldn't help but be struck by the fact that why are we surprised at his actions? He's just acting like who he is, a non-believer. Um, and so we... The, the message for me is I shouldn't be surprised about people in my life that I'm dealing with that have never bent their knee and proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord of their, of their life. I should never be surprised at the way they act. They might kind of fool me a little bit, and I might think, oh, they're coming along, and then boom, you know, they just kind of, there they are, back acting like whom they are, and we should not be surprised. We can't expect people who do not know Christ personally to make informed decisions because, you see, they haven't been transformed, and they certainly aren't conformed by his word. So don't expect something that just can't be there. And so pride, really, we find, goes before the fall for him. Proverbs 16, 8 tells us that perfectly. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Nebuchadnezzar should have looked at that. And then the second, second thing I think we see is that he kind of adapted the thinking, I've already said it, kind of the inch and the mile and the whatever, give, a little, you know, give me a little and I'll take a lot, that bigger is better, right? I mean, isn't that true? Don't we live in a city and a state that proclaims that loudly? I mean, I grew up in the 70s when, when everybody knew Texas women had big hair. And if you wanted to go to the University of Texas, you saw them have that real big tease up, you know, bigger, bigger hair, bigger cars, bigger houses, bigger toys, bigger titles. And yet what we know, if we know Jesus Christ and are following hard after him, then we know that loving those things, bigger things, will only leave us empty and unfulfilled. And that's a lesson Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to learn here because right now he's got that confused and he's not sure. So he sets up this thing. That's what I call it because it's not really a statue. You see, the statue described in two was in the form of a man, and that's not what we get here. This is really out of proportion, grossly out of proportion. And so what we get is this thing, this monument, um, that has some real distinct differences from the one described to him in chapter 2. Again, it's not just a head of gold. It's the whole thing of gold. It's not in the, in the form of a person. It's in, in the form of a, an, I don't know, it's just a monument. It's just a thing. And um, it's just a big old thing. It's, when you look at the dimensions, it, it, it would kind of go, you know, it's just long and tall and skinny and, like, goes sky high. Um, so... It's not really a statue. It's just a thing, and it stands way out on the plain. And why does he do that? Because you see ancient cities, when you go back and look at how they were built, that they were only built one or two stories high. So if I can build something very high, then where can it be seen? And if it's sitting on a plain, where can it be seen? It can be seen for miles around, and that's the whole purpose. He wants everybody that's anybody within any distance at all to see and know 
what he's proclaiming. And then he throws, along with this, he throws a Bacchus party. I love that word. It's, this is really a who's who invitation of the day. Regardless of responsibilities, the people that were in attendance represented all, apparently all, government officials. If you look in your chapter and go back, in the first seven verses alone, the word all is used four times. Notice those patterns and repetitions, ladies, as you study your Bible. They, they're telling you something. So we see all, that all were in attendance, that all had to bow down, that all. So all were there. And what we know in the ancient world, which really is no different than in our world today, because we just ask that you pay to have the best seat in the house. But a long time ago, those that were in position and power got the best seat in the house. So don't you know the all in the crowd, the who's who, the, the um, okay, I hate this when my brain does this. What do you call the, the president's, I guess his cabinet, his, what do you call the people that are yeah, his immediate guys that surround him, okay, the, the, the real decision makers in his cabinet, they're all there. They're on the front row. And everybody else is just standing around. So they're seated right before it, and everyone else is just thronging the plaza. That's what I envision is this, you know, maybe like the tea party thing that Glenn Beck had. I'm kind of like, okay, that's kind of like, it, you know, what it is, except the most important people were there. Can't say that about that particular gathering, but the most important people were there. That's what we've got. And it's funny because the king set this up to really make a statement about himself, and yet what we know is the king of kings was the one who really set it up because he's going to show these folks how the cow ate the cabbage, and that's what we have. And this whole showy nature reminds me a whole lot of politics today. I already said it. I mean, just... You can name kind of any, whether it's um, the inauguration, whether it is, let's just talk about elections, because November's coming up. And do you feel it? Like the pressure's building? I feel it. (laughs) I'm not even running, or really, you know, I'm not even in it. And I feel it. You can see that millions of dollars are being spent. Words are being analyzed. Uh, Things are being manipulated and maneuvered, all so that we can give our candidate the best possible chance of winning. And then what happens? Because on election night, everybody who's anybody associated with the candidate or the party is there to celebrate or, you know, kind of lick our wounds and go home. And so what happens is after that, uh, the music is there. Just think of it. It's the same kind of deal as was being set up here. And yet an announcement is made, and somebody does lose, and somebody goes home. And what happens is a new day dawns, and life moves on. And the same can be said in our own spiritual lives, I think, ladies, because our lives are filled spiritually with, with mountaintop experiences and valleys, peaks and valleys. And, and it's at the times that we are standing on the mountaintop um, that we need to be aware we might be the very greatest target for Satan, and which is exactly what happens here. And yet, many times when we're on the mountaintop, it's our own smugness and our own self-righteousness that gets the best of us. Not necessi- But all that just is a setup for Satan. And so don't forget that Satan is a roaring lion, and he's seeking to devour us, those who believe. 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And that's why we've got to equip ourselves, ladies, with the armor of God. And we find that in Ephesians 6.11-18. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may, I love this wording, take your stand 
against the devil's schemes. And that's exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They were armed, and now they're ready to take their stand. And that's what happens next. They refuse to bow. They just say no. I mean, Nike says it. It says, no, it's not Nike. It's the, it's the drug campaign. Just saying, Nike says, do it. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't just do it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was a Freudian slip. Don't just do it. Um, just say no. That's the anti-drug campaign. And that's what we want to focus on here today. Just say no. It, I think it would have been really easy to rationalize that day bowing down. It appears, we don't know because it's not expressly spelled out, but it appears that there were many Jews in the crowd who did just that. Because verse 12 does say this. Whoops. Verse 12 says, um, These men, O king, pay no heed to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the idol that you've set up, the image. And he's speaking of the three. So, We don't know for sure if others did, but we know these three pay the price for whatever did or didn't occur. And again, I just think it would have been really easy. Um, Fear would have really probably gotten the best of me. I want to think not, um, and I'm going to pray that that doesn't happen in my lifetime. But I can see how easy it would have been to rationalize. And yet these three do something different. Why? Because they knew God's word. And the question is, do you? When put to the test, do you know the answer from scripture? Can you give an answer? Can you give an account that is not your word or your opinion, but his word? They did. We will have no other. We will not bow down. That's Exodus. That, that is Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Whatever had happened in the years of living their life here, this was the deal breaker. This was the time they stood up and said, we will not bow down. And we see that Daniel's not mentioned here for whatever reason. Some scholars think he was away on official business, and some say his position could have been so high he was likened to the king and and just standing with him. Regardless, this test is not about Daniel. This is about his friends. So you can't rely on your friends or your parents or your siblings. There is going to come a time in your life where it is going to be put, the test is going to be put to you, and you've got to decide whom do I serve. And let us be like Joshua, who stood up in Joshua 24 and said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I think the other thing we learn here is that envy is a green-eyed monster because the Chaldeans who turned these Jews in were the same ones in two that were going to lose their life. And didn't didn't Daniel save their life? Yeah, I think he did. (laughs) That's funny, isn't it? And now they're turning him in. Now, why do you think that is? Well, because these Jewish boys had come in and they, they ripped the rug right out from under those Chaldeans. These were the, the guys that were supposed to have those positions. And so, you know, same stuff happens today with us. And what sets in when somebody takes what should have been yours or your kids? Worse, your child. I mean, my goodness, he should have been captain of the team. She should have been whatever, you know, president of the class. I mean, what happens? Ooh, ooh, ooh. The little green-eyed monster comes in, and jealousy begins, and envy begin to take root in our heart, and so we've got to be careful. I think that's what I see right here. Man, these guys, the word that's used there is they delight in finding the Jews disobeying. They delighted in it. Do you delight 
when someone falls around you? Have you ever? I have. And that, I think that's the warning in this right here for me and for you is not to delight in the downfall of another, but instead to be the one that brings healing when a fall has occurred. I love um, this verse. Brethren, if a, man has any, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you, you, ladies, who are spiritual, should restore him and do it in a spirit of gentleness. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted from Galatians 1. The idol right here for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was easy to spot. It's on the plane. It stands miles high beyond anything anybody can see. It's so easy. Um, It was this thing they were called to bow down to. But what about our idols today? I'm so glad in your lesson you got the chance to, to ponder on that question as you did this. And I hope you got a chance to talk about the idols today. And I just, it just reminded me of Kyle and I when we first got married. Um, every ca- car that Kyle had owned up to the point of um, our marriage was one that came with at least 100,000 miles on it and had a price tag of no more than $500 because his dad worked for a company that had field cars. And so it was perfect that that was the car, those were the cars that he would have and he would much rather have had the money than the car anyway he didn't care about that and that was what I loved about him I loved that gold fury flame whatever it was that he came to pick me up in but we were married we both had jobs and I was working for a bank and I'll be darned if we didn't repossess a gold two-door little tiny sports BMW screaming success and you know what we bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. We were like, yeah, that's it. That's, that's a car for us. We know it is. It fed every cultural image we had. And so what did God teach us in that car? Oh, I'm so thankful he taught us this really early on because it made a big point. That car was the biggest lemon there ever could be. We had taken it to get it checked out, but later we found the car had actually been wrecked. The whole frame beneath, I mean, the engine maybe was okay, but the frame was bent, and it was just problem after problem. We just didn't have that kind of money to spend on fixing something that was a lemon, and it was a lemon. And God taught us that, you know what, it is not about the car. That wasn't what this was about. It was about our heart and where we were and why we thought we needed and wanted that car. Because, you see, the car looked good. It looked like status to our friends. It showed that we were important. It showed others that we had arrived, and that was the problem, and that was the downfall. And so, man, we were never so glad two years later to sell that car and be done and hopefully learn the lesson. Okay, God, okay, okay, we got it. Let's move on. So the question we got to ask ourselves, ladies, here is what are the idols in my life? What causes me? um, What are the things that cause me to spend my time, my talent, and my money the way that I do? And be honest about that. Ask yourself that question. Be honest. Oh, you men of little faith, don't seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink or be anxious in mind. For the nations of the world seek these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things shall then be yours as well. So let us be women today who put God first in our lives and refuse to bow down to the idols of our day. And that takes us to our last point. I love it when God saves the day. Go ahead, you could sing it. And God will save the day um, because they are rescued from the fire. This is the most incredible story I have ever seen. Have you ever been in a fire? We build fires all the time at our lake house. And I'm telling you, ladies, all you have to do is stand on the edge. 
and you smell like it. Um, uh, my husband, my father-in-law, they, they, I mean, there's a, a centuries-long tradition about how you set the fires at our, and, and like you make this little line, and then you light it, and you do it with diesel, and then just, woo, and it like pound, I mean, it's just a great guy thing. They love it, but I've actually seen my father-in-law and my husband kind of have a little singes, because, you know, the, they got a little too close to the boom before it went off. That's what happens. Ladies, this fire killed the men that carried them up there to throw them in. I mean, did you think about that? Did you dwell on that? And yet it did not touch them. Not a hair on their head, not an eyebrow singed, not even the smell of smoke on them. This is a miracle. But isn't it even more incredible that the the cords, which we know in that day and age, there was no poly whatever, neo something, fire tested. Uh-uh. It was, it was rope. Boom. Burned off. Freed. Freed in the middle of the fire. Okay, you've got to be thinking about that. You've got to dwell on how incredible this story is. It begins with this king making some really unreasonable demands. And I think we learn right off the bat, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, he struggles with anger. <laughs> yeah, that, if he would stand up in CR, he'd say, I'm a guy that struggles with anger. We saw it uh, earlier in the chapters before. We see it in 13, 15, 13 through 15 when he confronts these three. You see, I think he really liked them. And so when, he, when, when the Chaldeans came forward and said they didn't bow, he's like, then he's really mad about it, and he's like, okay, well, now it's your chance. Now you bow down. So, because I don't think he wanted them to die. But when they refused again, that not only had they not bowed at the, at the first harp liar, blah, 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 blah. Now when he gets in their face and says, okay, okay, so maybe you didn't understand. Now, bow down. They don't do it. Okay, he explodes in rage. But again, the rage is all just God directing to make the miracle that much greater because he heats the fire seven times hotter. Okay, if it wasn't hot enough, we're going to really make a show. He thinks he's controlling and directing this, and he's not. And then he proclaims very arrogantly, so what God will be able to rescue out of my hand? Well, of course, none of his gods can because the only gods he worshipped were stone and wood. And he doesn't know God, the God. He doesn't have a personal relationship. So, of course, he's right. He's right on in making that claim because his gods cannot. Gods, plural, little gods, cannot deliver so he gets a very unusual reply because these men, I loved the question, the arrogant reply, and our, our questions said, well, you know, what about the arrogant reply or the apparent arrogant? And I was like, they weren't. They were very respectful in their, their reply. He was the one that was losing it, and they just stood up and looked him straight in the eye, this ruthless ruler whom they knew was going to throw them in the fire, and they said, we will not bow down. Whether our God is able, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. In that, it's the, one of the greatest declarations of faith in the Bible right here. And so for us, the lessons I got is you and I should obey the authorities over us until we must disobey them. We're called to obey, and I love that your lesson took you to Romans 13 because God makes it very clear. Everybody must submit to the government authorities. And we saw that Jesus even said when, when questioned by the Pharisees, because they all hated Rome, and remember when they put Jesus to the test with the little coin and said, what do you do with this all over taxes? Boy, wouldn't that, isn't that a great argument today, the whole tax thing? 
And Jesus, what did he reply? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto to God what is God's. And he was talking about Rome, hated Rome. But he said, hey, they're put over you, so pay your taxes. So we should obey authority until, until the authority goes against God. That's the answer. Obey until until it violates what God has set down, and that's what happened. And we see this again in the New Testament with Peter and the disciples because they were doing the same thing in Acts chapter 5 in the early church, and, and they had been ch- charged with not teaching in the name of Jesus, and they answer that they had been hauled into court, and they're actually going to be imprisoned, and their reply is, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with all your teaching, but Peter and the apostles answered them, we must obey God rather than men, so they came under authority until they had to disobey, and so we know that's the first thing we should do, But the second thing I think we need to get a good handle on here, ladies, is that we need to know that bad things do happen to good people, even in God's economy. I love that they took us to Hebrews chapter 11. And and if you didn't look it up, go there. Because he talks a lot about the hall of faith and those that were delivered. And then you get to the end and you find, ah, but how many were not delivered? And who can understand why? I don't understand it. Why did Stephen become the first Christian martyr? Why did John the Baptist lose his head? Why was Christ crucified? I can't understand it this side of glory, but I can trust God can and has a reason and a purpose. And so I just came up with five things that I think describe why bad things happen. Number one, we live in a fallen world. Sin still rules. From the time of Adam and Eve Eve making that first choice into sin, we live in a world filled with sin. Babies die. People get sick. Men lose their jobs. Women lose their jobs. Women are raped. These bad things still happen. Children are taken from their parents. And then we see that God uses suffering, though, to draw people to himself. And I'm not going to read the verb, the, the passages because we're out of time. And we see that suffering purifies our faith. We see that very clearly in James. Know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We know that evil can be used for good. Joseph, the story of Joseph, and when he finally gets before his brothers, what does he say? We talked about this in week one. You meant it for evil. You meant it for harm. But God, but God meant it for good. He sent me to Egypt ahead to save all. Wow. And then finally, we just don't know what God is up to sometimes. It's like doing the tapestry. And it makes a beautiful picture on the front side, but on the back side, it's knotted and ugly. And you don't know what's... You're not the creator. He is. And you can't know what he's doing sometimes and what he does. So the issue still is if we can determine to honor God regardless of what our circumstances, however tough they might be right now, if we can determine to honor him, then we'll be freed just like these guys in the fire, freed in the middle to move through the trial rejoicing because God is in the process of transforming us just like Colt. I, don't, I, I know I stand on the rock. I don't know why I didn't get to play the game of all games, my dream of all dreams. I don't know why, but I know God, and it's okay. 1 Peter 1, 7, These have come so that your faith of greater work than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. And so we get ultimately unusual respect. Remember the pomp and ceremony at the big circumstance at the beginning of the chapter? 
The Babylonians thought they were there to honor their king, but they found out instead they're eyewitnesses to one of the greatest recorded miracles of all time. Not only does the king ascribe then go on and ascribe respect for these Jews, but he makes an edict and he demands the whole empire do the same thing for the God of these Jews. This declaration will set up safety for the Jews that are going to live and thrive in this land so that they can return as the remnant back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. You see, these young men, they couldn't keep the flame from destroying them, but they trusted a God who could. And that's the lesson for us. God uses fiery furnaces, circumstances, trials in our life to refine us just like he did the exiles. Even if it takes a lifetime for it to unfold and for you to see what was happening and why it worked out the way that it did. Because his timing is not our timing. We saw this in, Ru- in, in Russia. What? Where did that come from? In Africa, because we were just in Africa last week. And all around us are examples of, of people, uh, of stories of just incredible things. Their life really is a fire almost every day of just living through some amazing circumstances. But we had an interpreter um, with us named Christian. Funny thing that his wife, I mean, that his mom named him that. His name was Christian. And he was the kindest, gentlest soul you would ever meet. And only later, midweek, did we find out his story. This young man was the product of, um, his mom was a Tutsi, fled Burundi in the first wave of um, conflict between the Tutsi and the Hutu. And this was in the late 70s, in the 70s, they fled to a refugee camp in Rwanda, um, where the best seemed to the people there that the best thing because they could not eat was to prostitute their daughters and his mom was one of those and so she became a prostitute to feed the family and the man that donated the sperm I won't even use the father term because he never knew his father the man was a white man and um, you think that this woman though in the midst of her tough circumstances served a God because she named the product the child of this union Christian And yet some bad things began to happen to him as well. So he lived in a refugee camp. The white man that he knew who the man was but never knew him, never had a father, and then that man dies. And then later his mom, not later, his young life was was tragic early on, died of AIDS. As you could imagine, she contracted that as a prostitute. And so at 10 years old, this boy had no one. But he had known who the dad was, so he went to the uncle, the brother of his father, and said, I don't even have a country. I don't even have a birth certificate. I'm not asking anything from you, but could you help me get to the authorities? And he was rebuffed, turned away by this man. I don't even know you. Get out of my sight. And this set a seed very deeply inside of hatred for white men. That's what happened. And you can understand and imagine. This young man, because he was half, his mom was Tutsi, so lighter-skinned anyway, now, now um, impregnated by a white man, and this young man became a mark as a Tutsi, even more so, um, stood out as being different than all of those around him, and it marked him, and he began to hate white men. But God had a plan, and in his early 20s, he met Jesus Christ full on. And so years later, we meet him. He's only 29 now. And now he is serving white men that came, not for our purposes, but to build our faith and to tell us who God is. So I don't know what the trial is you're experiencing in your life today, because I do know there are health issues in this room. I know there are marriages on the rocks. I know there are husbands without work, women sitting here without work or with a job. I know there are people who's 
child is wayward and gone another way. Whatever it is, consider it pure joy, my sisters, whenever you face a trial, because you'll know that the testing of your faith will develop endurance, perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And then never forget that Jesus told us, surely I will be with you always. That fourth person in the furnace, Jesus, pre-incarnate, with you always, even to the end of the age. Yeah, Jesus walked through the fire with these Jews just like he's promised to do with you and me. He may not deliver you out of it, whatever it is in your life, but you can bank that he will walk with you through it. So ladies, let's be women today who believe that Jesus will be with us no matter how hot our fire. Father, thank you for the furnace we got to be in today to remind us that you are with us through the fire and let it refine us because I don't want to be immature. I want to be mature and complete, lacking nothing. In your precious name we pray. Amen.